Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over the second half of chapter 5. Divine Models of Knowledge. If you recall, we've talked about different models for the way God can understand the future and know the future, and today we're going to go over the next concept, which is known as middle knowledge. And to briefly explain middle knowledge, theologians have tried to explain that God knows the future and how he knows the future, maybe the future act causes God to know it, and it could still be a free act somehow, and we've gone over all that. Now we're going to talk about this thing called middle knowledge, which is knowledge of how things would have been had they been different in some respects than they are. So this idea was proposed by a Spanish Jesuit named Louis de Molina. And so middle knowledge and its people that adhere to it are also called Molinists. How about Luis de Molina? Sure. But people are called Molinists. That's the point of what I'm trying to say. <laughs> okay. All right. And it is basically the idea that God knows what free people or creatures would do in any given situation, regardless of whether it actually happened or not. For instance, if God would know, if I created a world in such and such a way and I put Bob in that situation, God would know what Bob would do in that situation. And if he didn't like what he saw there, then he'd be like, oh, well, I could see how that would turn out. But since I don't like that, I'm going to choose an alternative. And then he could use this middle knowledge or this knowledge of what would happen, even if it's not going to happen, he would know what would happen and therefore can plan accordingly based on that. Is that a fair basic assessment of it? It is. I mean, I'm going to give a, a brief introduction as to why this is the way it is. It's basically God viewing all the possible worlds he can create. And he's looking at which ones he wants to create. So he looks at what, what any person would do in any given world that he creates. The person doesn't exist yet. And in fact, the person may never exist. He may choose not to create some persons based upon what they would do if he created them in certain circumstances. So God views all the possible worlds he can create and chooses the best mix given his purposes that he can create and creates those. It's really an explanation for God's providence and why he chose which of the worlds to create. We can kind of do a, a comparison with a popular movie, It's a Wonderful Life. In It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey has shown what his life would have been like <laughs> if he had never been born which is a strange thing because if you had never been born, you can't show a person what their life would have been like because they would never have had a life. He's really shown what Bedford Falls would be like if he had never existed. And it's, a, it's an amazing difference based upon the fact that he's just not there to lend his wonderful influence to the daily life of Bedford Falls. And so that's the way things would have been. But how does God know how things would have been? I mean, he doesn't have the actual life of George Bailey in the alternative world to look at because that one never occurs. And so the real question with middle knowledge, um, or one of the several questions of middle knowledge is, how does God know such things? 
or what would be the grounding of, of his knowledge? It's called the grounding objection. I would oppose, so I want to oppose this also. So we have these kinds of propositions about what, what would happen if George Bailey had been created in different circumstances or, or what Bedford Falls would be like if there were different circumstances. That is opposed to the kinds of statements where we say what might happen. And so if we say that something might or might not happen, that means that it, both possibilities still remain even in any given circumstance. You give the example of a Christmas carol there, whereas, you know, Scrooge gets shown his future, but it's not, this is definitely what's going to happen, it's this is what could happen if things stay on their present course, and those are two right. different views. They're just exploring the world given different types of ways of looking at the world. But it's a very different kind of proposition to say, if, God, if you were created in circumstances such and such, you might do this or you might do that as opposed to the affirmative proposition if you're created in those same circumstances that you would do that. All right. The would is more of a definite statement that is invariable, whereas the might is still the option to either do or not do in those circumstances, and your actions are not totally dependent on those circumstances. Okay, so middle knowledge is taking the affirmative definite would. Something I found on Wikipedia is another name for middle knowledge or the kind of things that God would know in middle knowledge are called counterfactuals. And a counterfactual is a statement of the form, if it were the case that P, it would be the case that Q. And then they give an example. It says, if Bob were in Tahiti, he would freely choose to go swimming instead of sunbathing. It says, the Molinist claims that even if Bob is never in Tahiti, God can still know whether Bob would go swimming or sunbathing. The Molinist believes that God, using his middle knowledge and foreknowledge, surveyed all possible worlds and then actualized a particular one. God's middle knowledge of counterfactuals would play an integral part in his choosing of a particular world. And so that's just basically the idea there. And the example I just gave is kind of the same type of example you gave in the book when you refer to Kid Rock, which I find is actually pretty funny because Kid Rock is a rock star that happened to just barely be getting popular back in 2001, so you probably heard it somewhere, and you're like, I'm going to use that in my book, Kid Rock. That's just funny. Yeah, actually, what happened is in the original manuscript, I called him Rock Rob, but I had a secretary who was typing it who changed all of those to Kid Rock. It, it still works, but I kind of like the name Rex Montgomery, and so I was going to use that one. But uh, Is your example there point out anything different than the example I just read does? Yeah, here's the important part of middle knowledge. For any given circumstances, if an action is free, let's say that you're creating a circumstances where you are in a store, and the circumstances that you want something to buy will, will say you want a candy bar. And the circumstances, you don't have enough money to buy the candy bar, and you're really hungry. In that circumstance, you're free to either go without the candy bar or to find a way to purloin it and steal it. So I have a, a world where you steal, and I have a world where you don't steal, given the same circumstances. Given that you're free, both worlds are possible, because it's entailed in your freedom. And it turns out that, however, given the counterfactuals, Given the fact that there is a true counterfactual that states, if you were in this circumstance, in this store at that time, under those circumstances, you would steal the candy bar. So God knows if he creates circumstances, see what you're going to do, because it's entailed in a true counterfactual about what you do. You would steal it. 
And so there is a world that God can't create if he creates circumstances and they entail certain kinds of actions. So God can't have a world where those circumstances are true and where you refrain from stealing because of the nature of the counterfactuals that he finds when he surveys them. And so you have a, just an incredible philosopher, probably the most influential philosopher of religion in the past century, Alvin Plantinga, who uses this as an explanation for why the logical argument from evil is not valid, and here's why. It turns out that if there is such a free will of this nature, where you can choose to either steal or not steal, that God finds out that no matter which possible world he creates, there may well be possible persons that he would create, and he could not create a world in which they would always go right. No matter what, if he creates a world with certain circumstances and puts people in them, the counterfactuals of what they would do in that world are such that they just may always go wrong. It's not up to God whether that's the case. And to his horror, God discovers when he views all of the possible persons he can create, they have a, a huge defect. He calls it transworld depravity, in which no matter what he does, there will always be something that each of these possible persons would do wrong if created. And so it's not up to God. He can't create free people and have a world without evil because whether they do evil is up to them in the circumstances in which they find themselves. And so he argues that this logical problem of evil, where the argument that he's referring to is essentially this, God can create any possible world he wants. It's logically possible that there's a world without any evil where people always do right. And so God is culpable for not creating that world. And what Plantica is explaining is that logically that's not the case given libertarian free will and this notion of mental knowledge. That God could have this incredible knowledge of what we'll do, and he still can't create the world that he wants because it's not available to him given the nature of free will. This was one of the most discussed arguments in the history of philosophy in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. There came a point at which there was a virtual consensus that Plantinga's argument was in fact a good response to the logical problem of evil. And this general consensus, however, has begun to erode. There have been a number of articles in philosophical journals in the past five years suggesting that it's really not the case that Plantinga's argument is successful because this notion of transworld depravity is not only false, it's necessarily false. It's not the case that every single possible person would go wrong. There are possible people who never go wrong. And so I suppose it's still an open question. I tend to believe that Plantinga's argument is successful if God is creating free people. It's not up to him whether they go wrong sometimes or not. But this is also an explanation of the nature of God's foreknowledge in suggesting, well, he knows that if he creates you in the certain circumstances, what you would do, and he knows which circumstances have been created, so he knows everything that's going to happen. But he also knows that there are numerous possible worlds that are not within his power to bring about. Even though he knows what would happen in the circumstances, he can't determine what will happen in those circumstances. Does that explain it for you? I believe so. It, it did kind of complicate one thing. So I thought in this version of middle knowledge that, well, at least that's how I understood it. Tell me if I'm wrong. So in your book, you give this little schema, and I, it, got, it has the same thing on Wikipedia. It says, God finds himself in, in a creation situation consisting of natural knowledge, which is the possible propositions that he knows that are true, that we already talked about that in the last podcast. 
then this middle knowledge, which is the counterfactual statements, so that he can basically assess which world he wants to create, and then he takes his creative action, and then he makes the certain circumstances so that he can make whichever of the middle knowledge paths come about that he wanted. So two things. A, I would think that all of this would have to be done before creation of any kind. And so I don't see like a creation event being like, now I'm going to put Bob in a gas station because he's going to rob it. I would assume that this would have to be before anything was created at all, or at least any, if you go with creation ex nihilo, it would have to be before any other creation. He sees every possible path and he sees the one that will lead to the maximum benefit that he sees, and then he chooses to create that, knowing all of the different things that he knows. But based on what you just said, it sounds like that it's somehow still, I don't know, because I know later, well, I'll jump ahead, spoiler alert, but one of the problems with middle knowledge is free will. And from what you just said, it sounded like it still supported free will. No, the people who adopt middle knowledge assert that it is consistent with free will. I argue that it is not. I see. So I'm simply elucidating their view, and then I'm going to look at the problems and ask, well, is their view coherent? And I'm going to argue that it is not. However, your observation is nevertheless intelligent and astute, because you have seen that mental knowledge assumes creation ex nihilo, the creation out of nothing. God is creating possibilities. He's creating possible persons. So there may be innumerable possible persons that God could have created that he decided not to create. and That's only possible if persons are created out of nothing, or if God brings them about, or if in the circumstances he creates them, their parents will cooperate with him to create more people who who will come into existence. But the bottom line is is that there is an actual divine creative decision made where every single proposition that will be true is determined by God based upon the circumstances he chooses to create. And so it requires creation ex nihilo to have middle knowledge of this nature. So you do kind of parse out two things. So since we're called Exploring Mormon Thought, we kind of have a Mormon angle here, and we'll parse out this in each way. So there's a certain way that middle knowledge would work with creation ex nihilo, and that's generally how it's been thought about. But also some Mormons have brought this up. You know, I've heard these kind of arguments. And one of the main supports for this is you give this example of when Joseph Smith gets a vision of his dead brother Alvin in the celestial kingdom and he's surprised and or he's surprised that he's in the celestial kingdom because he had died before the restoration and he's like how can this be because they just had received section 76 not too long ago and that clearly stated that those that had not received the gospel in this life would go to the terrestrial kingdom or telestrial I can't remember just not celestial basically but then he gets this vision of Alvin in the celestial kingdom and he says how can this be and then God basically tells him that He knows that if Alvin had lived to see the restoration of the gospel, then he would have embraced it. And this sort of implies middle knowledge, or can imply the same idea of middle knowledge for Mormons. And anyway, we're going to take that statement and then deal with it along with the general creation ex nihilo as we go through the next section. So we've sort of teased a few of these, but the next section is problems of middle knowledge. Well, let's go back. One of the facts about the way that the scripture is written that was canonized by Spencer W. Kimball. So Alvin dies in 1825. Joseph Smith has a vision in 1836 where he sees him in the celestial kingdom, which, as you notice, is inconsistent with section 76 because it says those who die without the gospel are going to be in the terrestrial kingdom. And so Joseph says, how is that possible? 
And what's interesting is our scriptures seem to have counterfactuals of freedom asserted in them. So here's what it says. All who have died without a knowledge of the gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, that is to live, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Note the counterfactual here. Who would have received it if they had lived. They don't actually live. So how does he know what they would do? Well, he has to have mental knowledge to know what they would do. Also, all who die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all of their hearts, shall be heirs of the kingdom. Another counterfactual. Those who don't have a knowledge of it, but who would have received it with all of their hearts. Again, another counterfactual of freedom. In reading this scripture, it seems to require that God have this kind of mental knowledge and his foreknowledge of what people would have done seems to be based upon this requirement that he knows exactly how things would be if the circumstances had been different. All right, so on to the problems of middle knowledge. So the next sections are all problems of middle knowledge, but from that particular section of the book, the only thing I wrote down is, how does God know which counterfactuals of freedom are true? God can't know the truth of such propositions because he sees them as they actually are, for they, they're not that way. That is, such propositions correspond only to hypothetical circumstances. So, as we know, like a hypothetical is like, let's say Bob was in a gas station and one day, what do you think would happen? It seems that that would be just a guess. Anyway, in this particular problem section, did you or Jacob, do you have any other questions that you want to ask about this particular section? Before we go into the, the subsections of the different objections... Not really. I just wrote down in my notes, just kind of explaining shortly, that not even God knows that which doesn't exist, and counterfactuals don't actually exist because they haven't actually happened, and that's why God can't actually know them, or that that's why they, that would be a problem of middle knowledge, as far as I understand it. Let me bring this home even harder. Remember, I was talking about possible persons that God could create that he didn't create. And so we ask, well, who brings about the truth of these counterfactuals? What makes them true? And the answer is, well, the people who would in their free acts bring them about, the truth seems to be, and we'll use the fancy term supervening on these people, that's just a way of saying the truth of what would happen is dependent on the nature of the person that exists who would make the choice. Let's talk about, uh, we'll call this guy Chalk Orbit, okay? Chalk Orbit was a guy that God decided not to create. How could Chalk Orbit bring about the truth of a counterfactual of freedom when he never even exists? And so this, this is called the grounding objection. What grounds the truth of these counterfactuals of freedom? Luis de Molina just said, well, God intuits these things in his perfection, but that begs the question in a grand way. And so I don't think there's been an adequate answer to the grounding objection. One just simply has to have faith. Well, God is just so remarkable that we just have to accept that he has this kind of knowledge and there is no explanation for the grounding. I just think it's absurd to believe. So, you know, so what brings about the truth of them? It can't be the people who bring them about because they don't exist when God surveys all the possible worlds and what doesn't exist can't bring about anything. And they may never exist. And so the future that could exist, which never exists, doesn't bring it about. And it can't be God who brings it about because then it's not free. And it can't be the laws of nature that bring it about, because then it's deterministic and not free in the incompatibilist or libertarian sense of free will that the Molinists all accept. And so we're left with just this vacuous non-answer, it seems to me, and there is no grounding for middle knowledge. That's why this objection has always seemed very strong to me. 
There is, however, another response, and this is the response that was kind of given by James Talmage, interestingly enough, who explained foreknowledge in terms of God knows what people will do in the future because he knows their character so well. He's had aeons to study them, and he knows that every time you've been in a 7-Eleven in the past and you didn't have enough money, you stole a Snickers bar because you love Snickers bars. And if that's the case, every single time that's ever going to happen, I'm going to predict that that's going to continue to happen. And so we can say that it's based on the character of the person that that person would have had if created. Or in the Mormon view, it's very different because these people actually exist and God has existed with them for aeons. And so he's been able to observe what they do over literally an eternity of time. And so God's just got them down to a T. He knows what they're going to do. And so that's the best answer to the grounding objection that I know of. The problem with that is it assumes a person can't change their character. So if every single time I've been in a 7-Eleven, I've always stolen, what if I repent and change my nature or I change my character? What if I become a new person, wholly unburdened by the past, as Christianity presumes when we become a new person in Christ? I mean, it's presuming the falsity of Christianity to come up with that very explanation, it seems to me. And so what I want to assert is that character may give us some kind of a probability equation, but it's never going to give us the kind of certainty that is entailed in the statement, 100% likelihood all the time you would do this. That seems inconsistent with libertarian free will to me, and it seems inconsistent with basic Christian beliefs. And so that's the best response, I think, to the, the grounding objection. That is, that there's no ground for God's knowledge. There's just nothing there to ground it. And I don't believe that the supposed answer that was given is adequate. And I believe another objection you gave to the answer was that we're also experiencing things that we've never experienced before. Uh, those aeons that we were with God before were before we even had a chance to have a body to even taste Snickers or have the opportunity to have a lot of the experiences we're having now. How could he predict with 100% certainty things that we are taking upon ourselves now, trials that we've never had even a chance to be in? He's never had a chance to observe and see how we would do that in the past. Yeah, that is another argument. I think it's a good argument, especially from the Mormon perspective, because I've never had a body before. So all of the aeons that God's watched me, you know, what am I going to do when I get hungry? Well, do spirits get hungry at all? I don't know that they do. And so what would be the basis of God's knowledge? And it seems to me that one of the points of having new experiences is that we've never experienced it before. That's what we came here to experience. And there's no limit to the kinds of new experiences we can have. The kinds of new experiences we can have has the same properties as the largest possible integer, and that is there ain't such a number. There's an infinity. There's no limit to the kinds of experiences we can have. So this couldn't ground God's knowledge. I think it is another viable and valid objection. Well, moving from the grounding objection, then we now move on to the no-ground objection, which brings us more into there can't be any certainty. You say, one suggestion that has been widely accepted and in fact is suggested by the Mormon scripture itself is that God knows the intents of a person's heart or their character so thoroughly that he can know what they would do under any given circumstance. We just went over that. This explanation has even more appeal in Mormon thought because the creatures actually exist prior to God's creation. However, even if God knows a person's character, however, it seems doubtful that such knowledge is adequate ground of infallible knowledge because if a person is free in the sense that they can change their character based on free choices, then character is not certain ground knowledge. 
which we more or less just went over. Yeah, but I think it notes saying again that if we're if we're free in a libertarian sense, that really can't be the explanation for the grounding of God's knowledge. This is a good one. I've I've actually I've heard this idea a lot in like seminary class and stuff. It's like, well, God just knows you so well that He knows that in any circumstance, what it is that you would do, and that's how He plans your life out for you. Yeah, that He's a perfect predictor. <laughs> And as I said, it was a, and, and when we get in the next chapter, we'll see this. James Talmadge actually adopted this as an explanation of God's knowledge and foreknowledge. And so I assume that it's widely assimilated by Mormons because it's the assertion that Talmadge makes in Jesus the Christ, which has got to be one of the most widely read books in Mormon tradition ever. I think just about every missionary at one time was required to read the book. It's still in the missionary library. Yeah. And so I think it's been an influential idea. It's one that's easily grasped. I mean, it's an easy assertion to make because anybody who's been a parent begins to see certain patterns of conduct that their children fall into. And if I know my children really well, you know, I'm just watching them. And I know that when your twins get around the recipe books that are down for them to reach, they're just not going to be able to leave them alone every single time. And so I know what they're going to do, and they don't even have a formed character, but it, it's inevitable. However, I will mention that the last time they were here, they seemed not to have an interest in them, to my surprise. But that's the whole point. It seems like character and changing character and growth, as people change, leads to a lot of surprises, even when you grow up. And I think one of the greatest things about being a parent is precisely all the surprises, watching and just you know, marveling at the growth and the change. And I think God has to marvel and just revel in, in watching us as we grow and how we change as we grow. I think it has to be a wonderful thing for him, too. Well, that pretty much sums up the uh, no-ground section. Just a quote here by Robert Adams saying that a free agent may act out of character or change intentions or fail to act on them. If you're not free to be able to act out of character, if you were always part of the PEC, the principle of established character that you go over in the book. Go over that if you would, Jacob. Yeah, I'll, I'll go over that real quick. So the principle of established character is an agent A has forged a character by making free decisions in concrete situations. And that character is such that one, all future decisions will be consistent with that character. And two, all decisions arise out of the character in such a way that if A were in circumstances C, then A would not choose otherwise than dictated by the character based on decisions made under similar circumstances. So saying that our character is the basis of all of our decisions. And once again, this is saying that, you know, because of your character, if you're ever put in this situation, we know that you're going to be making this decision. But ultimately, you're not a free agent in that principle of established character, because if you're always going to make that same decision, then you never even have the opportunity to change intentions or fail to make that decision. An even stronger point here is in the same section, a William Hasker quote. William Hasker is another theologian or philosopher. We would call him an open theologian. He's a first-rate philosopher. He actually reviewed parts of my book, by the way, this very volume. I sent those to him to be critiqued because I, I just regarded him as one of the finest philosophers writing on these issues. He's still writing on these issues. He had an article in The Last Faith of Philosophy that just came out last month. And he's still at the top of his game, and I have huge respect for him. So I thank him for taking a look at the manuscript of the book. Yeah, William Casker's cool. I've read a few things from him. 
Anyway, the quote is, he says, If human character can be defined in such a way as to entail choices in conformance with character via psychological dispositions and laws, then free will, in the libertarian sense, is obliterated. So, the conclusion from this section, if we go back to our Alvin example, is that really, when God is seeing what he's seeing, all that he is actually seeing is that had Alvin not died before the restoration, then he probably would have accepted the restored gospel. He knows the probability is high, but if Alvin is actually free, then it's also probable, however less probable, that he doesn't. And that has to be there, otherwise there is no free will, just as William Hasker stated there. Let's address this right now, because later in the book I explain, well, how are we going to deal with the fact that our scriptures have counterfactuals of freedom in them? Because it seems like, scripturally, we are obligated to accept that there are true and false counterfactuals of freedom. And the response, I believe, that is best given is, well, God doesn't have to rely on what people would do if, if in circumstances. The fact is, we have work for the dead to see what they actually do when they're offered the opportunity to accept the gospel after this life. So they actually get to make the choice at some point. And so we don't rely on some world that could have existed but didn't. Instead, we rely on the fact that they actually are presented the choice based upon the work for the dead done by somebody else. In fact, God waits for them to make the decision to know what they're going to do. And they are free to make it or to reject it, and that's the basis of God's knowledge. In other words, people aren't exalted based on what they would do. Their exaltation is based on what they actually choose to do in the actual world. All right. So yeah, if we're going to deal with that now, there's three evolutions, if you will of this idea for Joseph Smith. So like I said, in section 76, says, those that didn't accept the gospel in this life will be in the terrestrial kingdom. Then he gets an update or clarification on that. He sees his brother and he is surprised because of the earlier revelation. It says, no, if he had lived, he would have accepted it here. But the subsequent, even after that revelation on work for the dead, removes that. It supersedes it saying, that's not even a problem because it's not based on whether or not they would have because God actually will see if they will. It depends on whether or not they do accept the work, and we'll come back to that at the end, but that's just that basic idea. Anyway, this section is probably the shortest, so I just want to jump into it real quick. We've pretty much talked about it's called Counterfactuals of Freedom are Probable Only, and as the title suggests, it's just saying that. Any counterfactual is not a for sure thing if free will is true. It can only be a probability, and so you give a kind of a cool example here, saying, let's say... God knew that if he put Adam in the Garden of Eden, that he would eat the apple because either he has knowledge of counterfactuals or he has knowledge of his character. And we've addressed two problems with that. But this just simply says, to have free will genuinely, these two statements have to both have equal ability to be true. You have six. If Adam were in C, meaning the situation, Adam might eat the apple. And seven, if Adam were in C... Adam might refrain from eating the apple. Those both have to be true in order to have actual libertarian free will. But if 6 and 7 are true subjunctive conditionals, then there are no true counterfactuals of freedom with respect of Adam's eating the apple in circumstances C. For both 6 and 7 are inconsistent with if Adam were in C, then Adam definitely would refrain from eating the apple. And so it's just basically saying it's only a probability and it's not consistent with actual existing knowledge of a, or just saying counterfactuals aren't a thing. There's probabilities, not counterfactuals. 
Or that if you're free, your counterfactual will always be a might. So you can never have a counterfactual to say, this will definitely happen or this won't happen. It's this might happen because the individual is free. All right. So we've got a uh, pretty good established thing there. So next, the agents aren't free objection to this middle knowledge. And Jacob's going to tell us more about that and maybe about a guy named Krog. We'll see what he says. The greatest difficulty with middle knowledge is that it's incompatible with libertarian free will. Non-existent beings can't bring about counterfactuals and can't cause anything to be true. So the supposition of non-existent agents is impossible within the Mormon tradition. However, it follows that middle knowledge is also impossible given Mormon doctrine of eternal intelligences. Pretty much because intelligences have always existed. So you, you go further. The actual world and all intelligence of all persons who can exist already existed prior to God's choice to create. Thus, if anything can be clear in philosophy, it is clear that, given the Mormon rejection of creation ex nihilo, God cannot know which counterfactuals of freedom are true based on his decision about which possible persons he chooses to create. It follows that God's knowledge as to which personal intelligences are actual is dependent upon which of them already exists. God can know what is possible for the actual existing intelligences to choose, but he cannot have middle knowledge as to which of these possibilities will be actualized based on his decision to create an intelligence. The Molinist description as to how God knows of which all possible worlds in the actual world is impossible given the Mormon view of creation. If you wanted to go a little bit into the the Krog problem and how that relates to this. We've kind of addressed this. This is the non-existing or non-existent agent bringing about the truth of the counterfactuals. And so we have these propositions that we've talked about where if Adam were in the garden and were presented with an apple that he would eat it. And so I ask, well, what is it that makes that proposition true? And you say, well, it's Adam and his character and what he would be. And I say, okay, let's replace the name Adam with a a person who was never created, Krog of Korg. Let's say it's Krog of Korg is in the Garden of Eden, and Krog of Korg would or might not (laughs) eat the apple. But the question is, what is it that makes that particular proposition true or false? It can't be Krog of Korg because he never exists, and non-existent entities can't cause anything to be true or false. And so the notion that the truth of a counterfactual of freedom is based upon what character a person will have is nonsensical, because if God creates ex nihilo and chooses who to create and excludes from creation certain people, you can't say that those people who were never created and never existed brought about the truth of the propositions that describe what they would do in any given circumstance. So it's another way of simply saying that if libertarian free will exists, then the truth of these propositions has to in some way be up to us. The truth of whether or not Adam will eat the apple when he's in Eden has to be up to Adam in a certain sense for him to be morally accountable for it. It has to be the case that if it's his free act, he's the one who brings it about. And so the truth is based upon, one would have to think, the free choice that he makes in the circumstances. Middle knowledge just seems to be impossible because there's just nothing there which could bring about the truth of the counterfactual freedom. And it seems, again, to be not only groundless but inconsistent with libertarian free will because the truth of the propositions cannot be up to the agents who supposedly bring about their truth in the way that's required for libertarian free will to exist. And the whole point of middle knowledge was to show how free will would be consistent with God's foreknowledge, and so it fails the very thing it tries to accomplish. And that's, I don't know, you, you deliver a, a hammer blow with the last paragraph in that section. If counterfactuals of freedom are not true, 
meaning they can't be true because they either either or then the entire enterprise of middle knowledge collapses and must be rejected having said that we're about ready to wind up and maybe note some applications for mormons but let's just stop for a moment and note how ingenious this way of looking at god's knowledge actually is it gets very complicated very quickly when we start discussing counterfactuals of freedom but working out a system where all of this is making sense and, and you're explaining God's knowledge this way, I just think it takes a great deal of creativity and genius. And I have a huge respect for Luis de Molina in his writings and his student, Francisco Suarez. And for that matter, I have immense respect for Alvin Plantica, who kind of reinvented it, responding to the logical problem of evil. These are very bright people. And the theology that they erected based upon the notion of middle knowledge is not merely imposing, it is a beautiful thing. And so I want to express my admiration for them as well as simply saying, I don't think it will withstand scrutiny. So that's my assessment of middle knowledge. Before we go on, one thing we didn't quite settle all the way was we understood why character wasn't a good determiner of what someone would do, but we never talked about, I mean, we sort of did, but given creation ex nihilo, why it even more doesn't work for creation ex nihilo. What we discussed is that we explain how God knows the future based upon his choice as to which counterfactuals of freedom to, to make true. In other words, we have the counterfactual of freedom. If Adam were in the garden, he would eat the apple. When God creates, it's no longer if Adam were in Eden, he would eat the apple. It then becomes when Adam is in fact in the garden, he in fact does eat the apple, okay, or will eat the apple. And so now we have a true statement of a future contingent based upon middle knowledge. And so middle knowledge works by basically in the creation situation, God transforming his knowledge as to what would be given all logical possibilities to what will in fact be given his knowledge of what he's chosen to create. But for Mormons, there is no such creation situation. There's no point at which he creates everything out of nothing and certainly no point at which he creates free persons out of nothing. For Mormons, free persons have existed from all eternity as free persons in some significant sense. And God doesn't choose which of the intelligences to create. We'll talk about it more when we get to the fourth volume that hasn't even been published yet, but it kind of gets God off the hook for the fact that there are evil people like Hitler, who a lot of people think it would have been better if they'd never been created, and the reason for that is that God's not choosing which free people to create. God's not responsible for the fact that there are evil people who, who make bad choices because he's chosen to honor their free will, and he didn't create them evil. They chose to be evil on their own, and so God's not responsible for which of the actual worlds exists. Only the actual world exists, and what God does, given the Mormon worldview, God takes people from where they are in whatever level of progression they have and lovingly works with them to move them forward if they're willing to do so. In other words, God is stuck with us. <laughs> he doesn't get to choose whether he works with us or not, but he has chosen to work with us to move forward given our level of light, our level of intelligence, and our level of advancement as he finds us. And so it's not the case that God could be culpable for having created monsters. And I think that's worth noting. Just something else I wanted to bring up about that, because you say that Mormons could say that since intelligence is perceived God creating them, 
that there could be some sort of backward middle knowledge, but because God isn't choosing which people to create, he's not creating the counterfactuals. In a sense, because we believe that we were intelligence as we were progressing, but in order for us to progress even further, we needed God's help to get bodies and to come to this planet. So would God be able to say at that point, I mean, he's kind of creating us in a sense in that he's creating us from one state into another where we're able to progress. Would there be some sort of possibility for counterfactuals at that point? Not the kind of counterfactuals that are more than probabilistic if we're free, because free will entails that we might or might not do an action, and there's only a certain probability of us doing the action. So there are no true or false counterfactuals. All counterfactuals are false, given the Mormon worldview. And I think that that follows from the notion of free will itself, but it also follows from the fact that God hasn't chosen which world to actualize. And so the entire Molinist and what Plantica is describing as God's choice is not a choice God ever had given the Mormon worldview, which I think is very significant personally. However, is God responsible? He knows that we've been bad eggs up to this point, and then he enhances our powers and abilities to do evil by giving us a body that allows us to do it. So, for instance, a person who never is born into a mortal body, I assume, wouldn't have the capacity to lift a shovel to hit somebody over the head with it. The question becomes, could God be culpable for having created people that are free to make those kinds of choices, A, or B, knowing that they're really bad eggs in a lot of ways, and then giving them enhanced powers to bring about evil? Could God be culpable for that? This is a question that Carl Mosser asks in a critique of Mormon thought. I respond to it and say, well, the whole point of Mormonism is there are no bad eggs. There's nobody that's inherently evil in Mormonism. We're all more or less evil and more or less good, and it depends on the kinds of free choices that we make as to which we are. And so, is God culpable for the free choices that we make? Only to this extent. God could override the free choices that we make and not leave us free. When we get to the problem of evil, I'm going to suggest that that would destroy God's plan for us and what he wants to accomplish with us. And if one values loving relationships, one party to the relationship can't coerce another and can't force the outcome. I thought you said it was metaphysically impossible when we talked about maximal divine power. Not only is he self-limiting, he is limited and he cannot coerce an intelligence. I would argue that he can't coerce the intelligence to the extent that he takes away the ability to choose at all, because the essence of an intelligence is the ability to choose. But there are a lot of ways I could come up with that God could limit the capacities that we have. I mean, what one would think that even given the Mormon notion of God, God could have caused Hitler to have an aneurysm when he was 10 years old and prevented everything that would have occurred if he had foreknowledge about the fact that it would occur. So what I want to argue is that God can severely curtail our freedom to do all of these things. The question is, can he do so consistent with what his purposes are? Because he can curtail without making a person pass from existence. He can't take away free will totally, or the intelligence would simply cease to exist as such. But he can limit the scope of power that a person exercises. And so Mormonism has to explain why would God allow people to have the scope of power to exercise their free choices in a way that brings about such evil. Mormonism still has to answer for that problem. And so 
when we get to the fourth volume, I'm going to suggest that if we put it in the context of God's purposes, we can see that given what he wants to accomplish with us by fostering loving relationships and having the possibility of love in the world, he must leave us free to make choices. And he can't accomplish the purposes that he has for us if he severely curtails our power and ability to carry out the choices that we make. What I kind of wanted to get at with the question I asked about us preceding God and him not making counteractuals because we're free, but counterfactuals of freedom do still exist. They're just probable. But how probable are they? I mean, if it's like a 95% give or take that, yeah, if Hitler comes into the world, we know this is going to be bad. Could God still be culpable for it? That's a pretty bad risk to take. I mean, it's not exact set in stone that he's going to do this, but there's a pretty good chance. I don't know that that's the problem. Every little kid is innocent and they make their choices. I think the bigger problem is after they've made their choices, that God allows them to exercise their choices without taking away their power to do so. So, for instance, take the instance of the 9-11 bombers. He certainly knew once they had commandeered the planes and aimed them toward the Twin Towers what their purpose was. Probably when they were planning it as well, you'd imagine. Exactly. They were, they'd been planning for months, which is exactly where I was going. He also knew because they'd been planning for months. Why didn't he curtail their power to carry out their choices when he knew the likelihood? Certainly it became more probable and more probable. And once they got past security, he could have simply had them all been paralyzed or given them aneurysms. Their hearts could have exploded and come up with all kinds of ways God could have stopped them. And I believe he has power to stop them, but somehow and for some reason he chose not to. And that's why there still has to be a theodicy or explanation of why God would allow such evils within the context of a plan that he may have for us and his purposes for us. It's not the case that the Mormon God gets off the hook scot-free unless the Mormon God is simply identical to a process view, and that's a possibility, it's a live option within Mormonism, or God is so technologically limited that he's overwhelmed and just can't get to everything like some radically finitist Mormons would posit. But we'll address these matters in That's much greater detail. Volume. <laughs> I have, you know, I've got, I've got another 500 pages on this, and so one would think that we better not, you know, shoot this entire wad tonight. Yeah, we'll, we we'll get there. I just wanted to bring up that that is still an issue with the freedom. Just a clarification. I heard you say God make God doesn't make the counterfactuals. Counterfactuals don't exist still. He just knows what they are. And then the idea of middle knowledge was that seeing the different outcomes, then he acts to create that world. So it, it just, regardless, counterfactuals don't go together with free will, just because the for them to be known the way that middle knowledge asserts, then given that situation, a person would have to act in a certain way in that situation. Otherwise, you can't know that thing. Yeah, the proper way to say that, and you're absolutely right, you're spot on. God does not bring about the truth of the falsity of counterfactuals of freedom. However, he does actualize worlds, and given the worlds that he actualizes, it follows that certain counterfactuals of freedom will be actual, is the proper way to state that. Your question will be answered later in the book. We do come up with something similar to middle knowledge, but it's just it's basically middle knowledge only with a probability, meaning he knows the probability of what would happen and then bases his plan based on that, and every change that happens, because there's going to be changes, he's going to be surprised, then he adapts. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into that, but I'm saying it does get answered later in the book. But it's a, it's a very good question. Yeah, it's just something I wanted to, to bring up. Keep it in mind, and we're going to get to it in the next couple chapters, in fact. All right, just to sum this up, 
I wanted to read this last paragraph. Coming back to our example of Alvin Smith, as we've been talking about, it's not because God had middle knowledge of what Alvin would have done that was superseded by the revelation for work for the dead. It's because literally Alvin is going to accept the gospel, and that's why he can be in the celestial kingdom. One other weird question is how God can show Joseph Smith the future if the future doesn't exist yet, because I would assume he can't be in the celestial kingdom yet, but hey, whatever. I just wanted to read this last paragraph because I thought it just drives that home. It says, Thus, God did not look on Alvin Smith's heart in some other possible world that he could have existed where Alvin could have lived until after 1830. Rather, God knows Alvin's heart as it actually is, like right now, he's with Alvin in heaven. And he knows that given his present willingness to accept God, because God is with these, you know, he knows him right at this moment, not based on this thing that doesn't exist, and the steadfastness of his current commitment, he, in fact, accepts the gospel. Now he accepts it, and is simply waiting for the ordinances of salvation to be performed for him. Obviously, I assume they've already been done, but at the time that he's talking to Joseph Smith about this. That is, God's knowledge is not a function of knowing what would happen had the world been different than it actually is, but of entering into an I-Thou relationship, which we talked about back in the first chapter, with Alvin Smith in the present moment as he actually is in the spirit world. So the reason God can show Joseph Smith saying he's going to be saved in the celestial kingdom, maybe he just gave him a vision of what he sees for him rather than showing him the actual future, but it's not based on any counterfactuals. It's based literally on his current relationship with Alvin Smith, and I just I thought that was a pretty strong ending to the section. Anything to add? No, except that if Alvin's work hasn't been done, I'd like to know so I could do it. I assume it has been. All right, so does that sum that up? Yeah, I think that does it. All right, well, next time we're going to talk about the incompatibility of free will and infallible foreknowledge. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.